Also, we have been looking at a study on the Psalms as we started last week, and we're going to continue all semester long looking at different Psalms. Now, of course, we're not going to run through all 150 Psalms, but we are going to look at a select few that are, frankly, some of my favorites that I think are awesome uh, for college students, and I really think that will uh, bless you and help you, and um, they will teach you. And uh, the Psalms are probably my favorite book of the Bible, so I'm really excited about um, this, this entire uh, series. But the series is titled Learning to Love for a Reason, because it is assuming that you and me, uh, we know how to love, in the sense, meaning we, we know how to love something. The problem is, is that we, we don't know how to do that well. And so, in light of that, we've got to be instructed and shaped. Our hearts are a lot more like clay, we've said, than brick. And they have to be shaped and taught how to love the right things. Now, the Psalms are great for shaping. They're like the potter's hands that mold us and teach us the right things to love. And I'm hopeful that this series, when we're done, we will have made major steps in looking what it looks like to learn, uh, I mean, making major steps, rather, in learning how to love God. There, I got it out. Um, So tonight, Psalm 16, you have it before you there, and we're just going to jump right in. Last uh, week, I was saddened to hear, I might be a little bit behind the times, but I was saddened to hear that two of my favorite actors, actresses, after uh, nine um, years of marriage, are calling it quits. Um, I was very bummed by that. I mean, I'm married. I love being married. If you've not met my wife, Laura, you need to. So I'm just sad that they were, uh, that they're getting divorced. Um, you might know them. They're freaking hysterical. Amy Poehler and Will Arnett. Uh, and incredibly funny people. So I'm just sad that that's the case. But as these celebrity divorces often go, there's often a statement that goes with it, Right. Um, and, you know, it's either an official statement from their PR person or from some source. And I want to read you the source uh, for what followed in the wake of their decision to get divorced. Here it is. They drifted apart like a lot of couples do, but there's no malice in the split, nor was anyone else involved. The two still love each other very dearly, and everything is completely amicable. But the romance died, and neither one of them was happy. So something had to be done. Did you catch that last part? That part about neither one of them was happy? So at the end of the day, they were seeking to end their marriage because they wanted to be happy. Happiness is what was desired. It's not being found in the marriage, so something must be done. Now look. Many things can be said about this, okay? I mean, we could talk about it for a long time, but my point is, is this. They were pursuing what was going to make them happy. And while I might disagree with them in their decisions, hear me, I get it. I get it. You know why? Because you and me, like a jillion other people, in fact, like everyone, always, always, always do what makes us happy. Listen to what one 17th century philosopher, he was a Christian, a guy named Blaise Pascal, he wrote a very famous book called The Pensees, or The Pensees, 
if you don't speak French, um, and my French is really bad, so I may have mispronounced it. Either way, listen to what he writes. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This this is powerful. Listen to this. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Even the person committing suicide is doing so because they feel like it will make them happy. Isn't that crazy? Why do I share all this with you? Here's why. Tonight I want to look at happiness. I want to look at it because that's what this psalm is about. And I think a working definition of happiness could be this. Happiness is what we experience when the heart gets what it wants. Happiness is what we experience when the heart gets what it wants. And I don't mean merely sensual pleasure. It's something that resides deep and abides long. It's what you're after when you want to be in relationship with that person. It's what you're after when you want that job. It's what you're after when you wish your parents would finally see you and accept you. That is what I'm at. That's, it's the deep thing. The thing that you want to last a long time. And here's where the problem comes in. The problem of happiness is this. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. Isn't happiness hard to find? Or if you do find it, isn't it fleeting? Doesn't it leave quickly? And you have to move on to something else? It's like that fog that comes in the morning. Where is it at 10 o'clock? It's long gone, right? So is happiness. In this psalm, David is going to talk to us about that deep, abiding happiness. And he wants to show you where you need to look to find it. And we're going to look at this under three headings. Ready? The beginning, the middle, and the end of happiness. There they are. So they're right there on your page. You can look at them with me. Let's start there by looking at this. The beginning of happiness. I'm looking at verse 1 and 2 from your text. Let's go there and read it real quick. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, Right out of the gate, David, the writer of this psalm, is doing something. I don't know if you caught it. He's saying, O Lord, I take my refuge in You. You are my shelter. You are the one who defends me. And then in verse 2, do you see what he says? He says, You are my Lord. Apart from You, I have no good. Some translations might say, I have no good thing. Now what is going on here? I want you to notice immediately that David is the king of Israel. He's every bit as powerful as President Obama is in our country. And he is crying out to Yahweh, Israel's God, and saying, you are my Lord. And do you know what that assumes immediately? Now, we don't use the language of lords that much unless you watch Downton Abbey and then you know Lord Grantham, right? 
and Lady Grantham. They're the master of an estate. And everybody sits below them. And whatever they say is what goes. It's what rules. And everybody who sits underneath them, what? They sit underneath their authority. What the Lord says, they have to do. It's the Lord's will in the manner that goes. Not the footman, right? Not the valet, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, I can't believe you watched that show. You're crazy. But you get the point. What does any of this have to do with happiness? Here is what it has to do with it. I want to suggest to you that David is saying something about the beginning of happiness. Where happiness actually begins. Before I punch it, I want to share a story with you. In 1942, a man named Viktor Frankl was, uh, was a Jew... He lived in Vienna. He was a physicist, I mean, sorry, a psychiatrist duh, and a neurologist. And he was put in one of the Nazi concentration camps along with his family. Now, in an article entitled, There's More to Life Than Being Happy, that just came out in the Atlantic Monthly, Emily Smith, the author, retells Viktor Frankl's story. And she tells the story um, of him losing his parents in the camp and of his wife, who was pregnant at the time, also dying in the camp. But he survived. And what he began to do was employ those tricks of the trade as a psychiatrist to help other people get through this experience. And he saw some men and women die and others make it. And he thought, these people are coming from the same backgrounds. They have the same education. What is it that's making some of them survive and some of them not? And do you know what he said? He said the reason that some of these are some folks survive and others don't is because they're finding their ultimate value in something outside of themselves. That they are looking outside of, of themselves, living for something else. In other words, he's saying that what kept them going was not them looking at themselves. Listen to what he says. Being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than the self, be it a meaning to fulfill another or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is. And that is what he is saying that got these folks through the camp. Now what in the world am I getting at? I want to suggest to you that the beginning of happiness, the way that it starts, ready, is utter self-abandonment. You've got to be able to look at yourself and say, I'm not the point. You have got to be able to look at yourself and say, what Ryan wants is not what must win the day. Listen, David said what? Apart from you, O Lord... I have no good thing. In other words, he's saying, you're the one that's supreme. You're the one that reigns the day. Not me. Not what I want, but what you want. And in fact, because you're my Lord, you have promised to do nothing but good for me. And so the beginning of happiness, the beginning of flourishing, as it were, of that deep abiding sense begins with you being able to look at your own bankruptcy and say, 
I can't do this. And it's not about me. Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to look at yourself in the mirror every morning and say, Ryan, it's not about you. That's what it's going to take for you to be happy. Here's another point. Listen to me. The culture will tell you that your happiness is going to be found in your autonomy, in your independence. And that if you want to be really happy, be a law unto yourself. And what David is saying, that's the recipe for disaster. You cannot be happy if you are your final end. You're meant for something else. You're meant for something else. That's what this text is saying is the beginning of happiness. Second point, the middle of happiness. What do I mean? I mean this. What is the thing that makes happiness flourish? How does happiness itself grow? Does the question make sense? How do we make it thrive? This text is going to tell us, and I'm going to keep it real short because we're going to have story time. So the two answers to my question are two things. Ready? Community and repentance. Now I'm going to come back to those, but you can find them in verses 3 and 4. Look at 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom all my delight. The saints were not super holy special people. They were normal people like you and me who were just in covenant with God, who had relationship with God. That's all the saints ever means in the Bible. That's what it means. And David is saying, it's in you, in that community, do I delight. And then in verse 4, he says what? The sorrows of those who run after another God shall actually multiply. I won't pour out their drink offerings. In other words, that was a way of making a sacrifice. And David's saying, I'm not going to worship those other gods. So he turns from them. Now, why do I talk about story time? In his seminal book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, if you've never read it, Brennan Manning tells a killer story. So I want you to pretend we're in kindergarten and I'm going to read to you. And I think the best way to get my point across is just by you listening. Let me set the story. The story is of an Alcoholics Anonymous group. Max is in the AA group and he's sitting there. And he is, uh, as he's sitting there, the person leading the group is interrogating him about his drinking history. And there's other men in this group, and they begin to ask questions of him as well. This is a true story. I'm going to read it. Brennan Manning is one of the men in this group because he is a recovering alcoholic himself. So listen to what he writes. It's sort of long, so take a, take a deep breath and hang with me, okay? One of my indelible memories goes back to April 1975 when I was a patient at an alcoholic rehabilitation center in a small town north of Minneapolis. The setting was a large split-level recreation room on the brow of a hill overlooking an artificial lake. Our leader was a trained counselor, a skilled therapist, and senior member of the staff. His name was Sean Murphy O'Connor, though he normally announced to his arrival with the statement, it's himself, let's get to work. Sean directed a patient named Max to sit on the, quote, hot seat in the center of the U-shaped group. A small, diminutive man, Max was a nominal Christian, married with five children, owner and president of his company, wealthy, affable, and gifted with remarkable poise. How long have you been drinking like a pig, Max? Murphy O'Connor began the interrogation. Max winced. That's quite unfair. Yeah, we'll see. I want to get into your drinking history. How much booze per day? Max relit his corn cob pipe. I have two Marys with the men before lunch and twin Martins after the office closes at five. Then 
Well, what are Mary's and Martin's? Murphy O'Connor interrupts. Bloody Mary's, vodka, tomato juice, a dash of lemon and Worcestershire, a splash of tobacco, and martinis, beef eaters gin, extra dry, straight up, ice cold, and with an olive and lemon twist. Thank you. Mary Martin, continue. The wife likes to drink before dinner, he says. I got her hooked on Martin several years ago. Of course, she calls them preprandials. Max smiled. Of course, you understand the euphemism, don't you, fellas? No one responded. As I was saying, we have two martinis before dinner and two more before going to bed. A total of eight drinks a day, Max? Murphy O'Connor inquired. Absolutely right. Not a drop more, not a drop less. You're a liar. Unruffled, Max replied. I'll pretend you didn't hear that. I have a business for 22-odd years and uh, built my reputation on veracity, not mendacity. People know my word is my bond. Ever hide a bottle in your house? Asked Benjamin, a Navajo Indian from New Mexico. Don't be ridiculous. I've got a bar in my living room as big as a horse's ass. Nothing personal, Mr. O'Connor. Max felt as if he had regained control. He was smiling again. Do you keep any booze in the garage, Max? Naturally. I have to replenish the stock. A man of my profession does, an entertaining, does a lot of entertaining at home. The executive swagger had returned. How many bottles in the garage? I really don't know. Don't really count. Offhand, I'd say two cases of Smirnoff, a case of beef eaters, a few bottles of bourbon and scotch, and a bevy of liqueurs. The interrogation continued for another 20 minutes. Max fudged and hedged. He minimized, rationalized, and justified his drinking pattern. Finally, hemmed in by relentless cross-examination, he admitted to keep a bottle of vodka in the nightstand, a bottle of gin in the suitcase for travel purposes, another in his bathroom cabinet for medicinal purposes, and three more at the office for entertaining clients. He squirmed occasionally, but never lost his veneer of confidence. Max grinned. Gentlemen, I guess we've all gilded the lily once or twice in our lives. It's the way he put it, implying that only men of large mean can afford the luxury of self-deprecating humor. You're a liar, another voice murmured. No need to get vindictive, Charlie, Max shot back. Remember the image in John's Gospel about the speck in your brother's eye and a two-by-four in your own and the other one in Matthew about the pottle calling the pot calling the kettle black. Brennan's own thoughts. I felt constrained to inform Max with the speck. In plain comparison was not in John, but in Matthew's Gospel. And the pot in the kettle was a secular proverb found in none of the Gospels, but I sensed the spirit of smugness and an air of spiritual superiority had suddenly enveloped me like a thick fog. I decided to forego and pressed on. Give me a phone, Murphy O'Connor said. The telephone wheeled into the room. Murphy O'Connor consulted a memo pad and dialed a number, and this is where the story gets awesome. It was Max's hometown. Our receiver was rigged electronically so that the party dialed could be heard loud and clear throughout the living room on the lake. Murphy O'Connor says, Hank Shea? Yeah, who is this? My name's Sean Murphy O'Connor. I'm a counselor and alcohol and drug rehabilitation center in the Midwest. Do you remember a guy named Max? Pause. Good. With his family's permission, I'm researching his drinking history. You tend bar in that tavern every afternoon, so I'm wondering if you could tell me approximately how much Max drinks each day. Oh, I know Max well, but are you sure you have permission to question me? I have a signed affidavit. Shoot. 
He's a hell of a guy. I really like him. He drops 30 bucks in here every afternoon. Max has his standard six martinis, buys a few drinks, and always leaves me a fin. Good man. Max leapt to his feet, raising his right hand defiantly. He unleashed a stream of profanity worthy of a Steve door. He attacked Murphy O'Connor's ancestry, impugned Charlie's legitimacy, and the whole unit's integrity. He clawed at the sofa and spat on the rug. And then he regained his composure, and the interrogation continued. Have you ever been unkind to one of your kids? Fred asked. Glad you brought that up, Fred. I have a fantastic rapport with my four boys. Last Thanksgiving, I took them on a fishing expedition to the Rockies. Four days of roughing it in the wilderness. A great time. Two of my sons graduated from Harvard, you know. And Max Jr. is in his third year. That's not what I asked you. At least once in his life, every father has been unkind to one of his kids. I'm 62 years old, and I can vouch for it. Now give us one specific example. A long pause, finally. Well, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old daughter last Christmas Eve. What happened? I don't remember. I just get this heavy feeling whenever I think about it. Where did it happen? What were the circumstances? Now, wait one minute, Max's voice rose in anger. I told you I don't remember. I just can't shake this bad feeling. Unobtrusively, Murphy O'Connor dialed Max's hometown once more and spoke with his wife. Sean Murphy, O'Calling, Sean Murphy O'Connor calling, ma'am. We're in the middle of group therapy session and your husband just told us that he was unkind to your daughter last Christmas. Can you give me more details, please? A soft voice filled the room. Yes, I can tell you the whole thing. It seems like just yesterday it happened. A daughter, Debbie, wanted a pair of earth shoes for a Christmas present. On the afternoon of December 24th, my husband drove her downtown, gave her $60 and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the store. That's exactly what she did. When she climbed back into the pickup truck, her father was driving. She kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. Max was preening himself like a peacock and decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the Cork and Bottle, that's a tavern a few miles away from our house, and told Debbie he would be right out. It was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees above zero. So Max left the motor running and locked both the doors from the outside so no one could get in. It was a little after three in the afternoon and silence. Yes? The sound of heavy breathing crossed the, reaction, the recreation room. Her voice grew faint. She was crying. My husband met some of his old army buddies in the tavern. Swept up in euphoria over the reunion, he lost track of time purpose and everything else. He came out of the cork at bottle at midnight. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and on her fingers. When we got to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated her thumb and forefinger on her right hand and she'll be deaf for the rest of her life. Max appeared to be having a coronary. He struggled to make his feet to, to make he struggled his feet making them jerky making jerky uncoordinated movements. His glasses flew to the right, his pipe to the left. He collapsed on all fours and sobbed hysterically. Murphy O'Connor stood up and said softly, "Let's split." Twenty-four recovering alcoholics and addicts climbed up the eight-step eight stairwell. We turned left, gathered along the railing on the upper split level, and looked down. No man will ever forget what he saw the day that day. Max was still in the doggy position. He had sobs he had, that had shored, soared to shrieks. Murphy O'Connor approached him, pressed his foot against Max's ribcage, and pushed. And Max rolled over on his back. 
you unspeakable slime, Murphy O'Connor roared. There's the door on your right and the window on your left. Take whichever is fastest. Get out of here before I throw up. I'm not running a rehab for liars. And then here comes the redemption. The philosophy of tough love is based on the conviction that no effective recovery can ever be initiated until a man admits that he is powerless over alcohol and that his life has become unmanageable. You want to know how to make flourishing, your happiness flourish? God may just take you to the end of your rope to where you've got nothing left to hang on to. And it's there in the context of community. In the context of people who will say hard things to you. In the context of repentance. Because Max changes his life, by the way. I'm just not going to read it. That God will take you. And He'll do it, not because He hates you, but because He loves you too much to let you continue in all of the denial and in all of the stuff that you're running to that's killing you. Do you believe that? That's what the Gospel says. Do you want a God that just lets you get on and get on with stuff that is killing you? Then Christianity is not for you. But God in His mercy will come to you And He will pin you down on the mat because He loves you. And He might give you the hardest of circumstances to wake you up. But He'll always do it in the context of community and to bring about true repentance. I have one more point. I'm going to have to keep it very short because of our time. But I needed to read that story. It just needed to be said. You may have been bored with it, and I understand that's okay. But it it was better being told than me trying to just teach. Story time is good. Let's look at the end of happiness. Very frankly, I'm just going to put it like this. This whole psalm is a praise that David has written. It is something that he is writing as praise. Look with me at verse 7. Do you see it there? He says this, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord before me. Then verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad. Here is what David is getting at. He is saying that whatever you delight in, whatever your heart loves, the love itself is capped off. It is finished. It is complete when you praise that thing. Now here's the thing about it like this. My wife, Laura, asked me last night if I would watch Parenthood. It's her favorite show. And yes, I like it. But week in, week out, at about, what time is it in? 10 o'clock? At about 10 o'clock. That's the best show ever. That show is so good. That's what she says. You've got to see it. Now, what is she doing in that moment? She's praising parenthood, isn't she? She's praising it as a wonderful piece of art, as a great show with great stories and great characters. And she's saying, you've got to watch this. 
because it's so good. Her delight in the thing is capped off when it's praised. And David is saying right here the same thing. That when you delight in something, you're always going to praise it. Now, here's where we have to go deeper. And this is where we'll finish. I've said all night long that happiness is about is the experience that we have when our heart gets what it wants. I have not yet said, what is the thing that David wants your heart to actually want? What is the object that David wants you to want? And you see it there in the last verse? He says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, these last four verses in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is at Pentecost and he cites these exact same words. And if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there because this is where we're going to end. Acts chapter 2. You can thumb through it on your phone. I'll give you a minute. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And this is what Peter is preaching. He says, after he cites that psalm, I'm reading from verse 29. You can see where he cited it right above it. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the David, the patriarch David, who wrote this psalm, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would see one of his descendants on the throne, verse 31, the money verse, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Do you know what David is talking about? Let's keep going. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Pause. If you look at the verses that are cited in Peter's speech, he says all of them at the end of the Psalm 16, except the very last line. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Peter does not say that. Do you see that? He does not say that part of the line. Why? Because verse 31, look. Sorry, verse 33. Being therefore, he's talking about Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God. Do you know what this means? Do you know who's sitting at the right hand of God? It is Jesus. Do you know that all the pleasures of God are bound up in the person of Jesus? In Jesus. You see, when you read the pleasures are forevermore at His his right hand, do you think, I can't wait to get God's stuff? I can't wait to get the stuff that He's going to give me? Or do you think what David wants you to think, which is this, no, You get God. You get God Himself. Not all the stuff that He gives you. You get His person. 
Literally, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Do you know what the word presence means in Hebrew? It means face. In your face, O oh Lord, that's where the ultimate pleasures reside. Ones that last forever and go deep. And David is giving you this because he wants you to know that it's in the person of Jesus that where all of your happiness is meant to lie. And when you go there, you have a happiness that never leaves and that never quits. Are you willing to believe that tonight? Here's the problem of happiness. You're looking for it in all the wrong places if you're like me. And David is giving us a song that we might sing to remind our silly heads, our forgetful brains. Sing this song, y'all, and be reminded of Jesus. Be reminded of Him, that that is the place where you will find your ultimate happiness. That's stunning to me because it's on offer to every one of you. It is. Y'all know what David did. He banged some other dude's wife and then killed him. Are you worse than that? Are you? Then Jesus is for you. Won't you come to Him? Won't you, won't you love Him? Won't you see Him as beautiful? That's my hope for you tonight. Let's pray.